There's been a conversation going on over the past week or so about downtown St. Catharines and what is happening there with people who are unhoused or are using drugs. Karen Orlandi is with me. Karen is minister at Silver Spire Church in downtown St. Catharines. And the church does a lot of outreach throughout the downtown core. Hi, Karen. How are you? Great. Good to talk to you today, Janice. You are a minister at Silver Spire Church in downtown St. Catharines, and you do a lot of work out of there for people who are uh, living in less fortunate situations, to, to say the least. And you're also a graduate from Brock University in, and sorry, if I, I forget what the program is. I'm actually still still in the program. So okay. I'm a graduate student in the SJS, which is Social Justice and Equity Studies. And my research that I'm working on right now is on the costs of homelessness, which are vast and, and large. And I'm just going to assume much greater than the cost that we would have to invest as taxpayers and governments into providing solutions. Well, and I think we've known that for a while. We don't have very specific details around Niagara specific. Um, There's lots of different ways of looking at it. And that's kind of where my research is going, because I firmly believe um, that that if we could ever get government and the private sector to work together on homelessness and actually, which is just housing, let's just be clear, it's housing. I think we could uh, definitely affect change. Yeah, I think, you know, I was reading um, a story about uh, Hamilton declaring a state of emergency for homelessness and opioid deaths. And that was just done recently. And it followed Niagara Region's statement, uh, declaration of a state of emergency. And as well, I know the city of St. Catharines has done it. And they spoke to, in the story, they spoke to a professor at McMaster who said, this is great. Hamilton has followed a good example of Niagara, um, which is asking for some significant, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is from the province. But unless this is more and more and more um, municipalities across the province, we'll never get anywhere. And I think that that's always the case. That's the case with with mental health, right? That, um, but we're never going to get any activity. And to be fair to the regions and municipalities, they can't do it on their own. Um, we won't get activity uh, for the financial help to affect the kind of change that you're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, there has been a little bit of an announcement, but I think there's, it's always a multi-pronged effort. So you have to, it's, you know, we always look at a medical model, right? Which is you have to stop the bleeding, which is folks who are living unhoused at this moment or living without the supports that they need to survive and subsist. Um, You have to tackle it from a housing perspective because there just isn't housing. And what housing is out there is completely and utterly unaffordable. You have to look at things like what does a guaranteed living income mean and how would that we have had some test markets of that and found that it was successful and then didn't do it. And and then just this overall model of how, how do we perceive this to be? Does everybody have a right to housing? Do we believe that? Does everybody have a right to sanitation? Does everybody, what are the rights of people as just as they are, irrespective of what they have to offer society in the way of, of, of awardable work, right? Which is specifically how we look at it. We, we look at everybody as 
What value do you bring to the community? If you're born rich, we don't actually ask you to, to what the what the difference is. What do you bring to your community? But if you're poor, we actually say, well, yeah, well, what, what do you have to offer? Are you a contributing member of society? And what does that look like? And so I, th I think some of those larger sociological kind of questions are at, at, at on point. And, and that's because that dictates how we see people and that dictates the language that we use and that and, and all of those kind of combine together. Right. So when we talk about homeless people, we all have a concept of what that means. Right. And we have and we have and I'm going to be honest and say there's there's a graduation of, of what is a, a so poor homeless people versus a bad homeless person. Right. You know, what are good reasons to be homeless and bad if you're escaping a violent situation? then you're the good homeless, right? We understand what's happened and, and don't get me wrong, there's lots of stigma around that, but there is less stigma. You know, if you lose your job and you can't pay your mortgage and you can no longer afford rent, which is, or there isn't anything to rent, that's a better state of homelessness than if you were suffering or living with mental illness, right? And, and here's the interesting thing. So, uh, and I may be jumping ahead. You may want to slow me down. Feel free to do that. But we talk about drug use. And I've had this conversation quite a bit today, drug use and mental illness. And we look at that as often part of the issues that, that happen with folks that are living without, that are living unhoused or experiencing homelessness. But the fact is, is the majority of people who live with drug use, whether prescribed or illicit, and the majority of folks living with mental illness have jobs and live in places and make their rent and do all of these other things. The only difference is these folks are experiencing homelessness at the same time. It's not an us or they, we are them, <laughs> right? Yeah. I personally, I live, I'm a recovering addict myself. I have gone through bouts of mental unwellness mental illness. And I think most people do, whether that's a period of grief or that's a period of depression or that's a period of anxiety or any other thing. I mean, I am that person. So when we keep talking about that, the only difference is I actually have great rent and a good landlord. That's a right. difference. Yeah. And, and um, I've talked before about this, but uh, I was quite severely mentally ill um, or living with a uh, with mental illness in the early 90s and i was out of work and in and out of hospital um for about well i was out of work for about eight years and but i didn't end up on the street i didn't lose my home because i had a really supportive family who took care of me when i wasn't in hospital i lived with my mom a lot i had a really really good support system of doctors and I had an income because I had a disability, a pension from my job. And I can guarantee you that even probably without having my family as a support, I look at people when I'm downtown and I just know that would be me because I, because a lot of people just don't have that kind of support, whether they can't afford it, they don't have the family. The family has said, you know what, we can't cope anymore. Um, but you're right about about the the who, and I want to talk about humanizing this because we often, and I have used this word a couple of times in this in this interview so far. We talk about the homeless, right? And and in that sense, we're dehumanizing people, or we talk about drug addicts, and we're dehumanizing these people. And we have to start to say, 
you know what? And <laughs> my idea is that rather than avoiding, for example, going downtown because you might be afraid, go downtown. Meet people, say hi to people. Sometimes I'll go downtown and I live downtown. So fair enough. You know, I'm, I'm probably in a little bit of a, a different situation. But when I go downtown and I see someone who's curled up in a ball and I say, hey, are you OK? Hi, how are you? Generally, a person looks up at me and they smile and they say, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? But that's a person. It's so true. So um, we do a lot of outreach and, and often we'll walk out uh, around Friday and Saturday nights. And, and our main goal is, is to connect with folks that are, that are hanging out on the streets. And uh, Johan Hari, who is a great uh, advocate around um, drug use and, and folks that, that live with addictions, says the opposite of addiction is connection. But I would say that the basis of community is connection. And if you want a good community, Stop trying to choose who belongs and who doesn't belong in a community and start saying hi and see where it leads. So we were out one night and, and I saw a fellow I recognized and I, I yelled his name across the street and he looked and he looked strange. And he said, I said, it's Karen. And, and I was with a, another friend, Melissa. And we went across the street and said hi to him. And he, and he said, you know my name? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I don't remember your name. And I said, oh, it, it's Karen. Don't worry if you forget it. I'll tell you again. It's no no big deal. And he said, no, no. When you say my name, I feel seen. People walk past folks downtown or folks in the north, wherever you are, people walk past and uh, and ignore each other. You would be stunned by what it takes if you smile and you say hi to folks. And here's the interesting thing is, is some will react with joy and a smile back, some won't. And that's mm. absolutely fine. Because I'll tell you, that is absolutely irrespective of what socioeconomic place they're at, or what mental place they're at. Some people will say hi, and some people won't. And we all have our prerogatives. I, You know what, I could get a businessman that looked at me cranky. And that's great. Maybe he's got something else going on in his life today. But it doesn't matter. We all have that ability to either make that connection or not make that connection and yeah it's really up to you to choose your own experience when you decide to come downtown well and as you say it's not just downtown right um i think that you so a couple of things one is um a lot of people who are using drugs it's trauma related right and I don't know how many people are going to get so sick of me saying I didn't, nobody wakes up and says, I think I'll be a heroin addict today, or I'm going to go to someone and say, could you sprinkle a little fentanyl into my, into my uh, drugs today? Nobody says that nobody wants to be um, uh, surviving and only surviving until they can get their next, you know, fix for lack of a better word. Um, and if you go to any methadone clinic, I have one at the end of my street on Welland Avenue. These are not, this is not a stream of people coming from downtown. Mm -hmm. You look at the cars in, in the parking lot. There are so many people out there who are potentially, you know, one, one painkiller away from losing their job or being, being unable to go to work through no fault of their own because somebody publicly prescribed them. Right? Well, and they were in a trauma-related position yeah. where they took something to relieve some some anxiety or or fear or you know whatever it is, and you know, bang. All addiction is always medicating pain. 
And whether that pain is physical, mental, or spiritual, it is always, every single time it is medicating pain. So if, if that's, you know, if you read a great book called Overdose, you know, the, the primary uh, folks, uh, jobs that folks are in with addictions, challenging addictions, issues of opiates are generally in the trades. Um, Cause that's where you first start to have to work while you're injured. So you're medicating. Mm-hmm. For um, other ones are first responders are second on that list in that book. And that is, again, your measure, you're medicating trauma, right? people who, and, and so it is a natural, it is a natural need to manage your pain, whatever that pain is. But every every time you're getting into some into more traumatic addiction or more serious addictions, it is always trauma based, always every single time. I have yet, and I've worked with a lot, lot of folks in recovery, and it's always there. Let's talk a little bit about public, uh, or a little bit more actually about about public perception of what is happening with people who are unhoused. Um, And as you said, there are levels of unhoused and you're absolutely right. But we hear things like, um, oh, I can't go to such and such a park because it's all drug users. And and Richard Pierpoint Park is pointed out quite frequently as a place that people are afraid to go. And in truthfully speaking, there are people who are living in the trees there. There are people who are, there are sex workers who are, who are in the trees just trying to stay alive. Um, there are people who don't have a home who, who um, are maybe drug users. Maybe they don't have a home and they're having shelter provided by those trees. We can't say, oh, well, that's it. We're never going to Richard Pier Park again. We have to look at what do we do? And again, it goes back to, we can't just talk about, we can't sit at home in front of our TV, reading the, you know, the news on our phone or our iPad and say, oh, I wish that wasn't happening. We need to do something about it. And we need to be able to say, you know what, I'm willing, I'm willing to pay a little bit more in taxes yeah, so that we can provide services. So I think there's a couple of things that are really interesting. And one one of them I really want to be clear on is that um, let's just talk about strictly defecating, urinating, and uh, and intercourse, sexual intercourse. Those things happen. Most people, I'm going to say, indulge in one or the other, usually at least two out of three, if not all three, in their homes or at work. Not necessarily, you know, but... We, we all do those things, but we all have, most of us have homes to do it in. So when you are homeless, that makes it a little challenging because you cannot stop defecating and urinating just because you don't have a home. Doesn't happen like that. So we need to actually have places for folks to do that. Um, sexual intercourse is another pretty fundamental thing that folks engage in. And it's really difficult if you've been homeless for a couple of years. So let's let's just be very specific. This is not people acting badly it's people acting like people who just don't have a home to do that in um drug use is pretty common in people's homes right and we have nothing against that uh we don't make any any judgment calls there right um i have known many people unfortunately who have passed away from drug poisonings where in their homes uh very seldom is it on the street 
Um, I bury a lot of folks who have died from drug poisonings, mostly in homes. So this is this is not. So when we talk about drug users, this is a very small percentage of folks that are both homeless and and cons consuming uh, drugs. So it's a very small percentage. Oh, I just had to get that out there. No, no. But you know what? One of the solutions that I am very in favor of, and I know the uh, Federation of Chiefs of Police uh, in favor of this, and that's a safer drug supply. Right? Absolutely. If we're going to talk about the opioid crisis and we don't want opioid deaths to increase, we have to talk about a safer drug supply. And I know that people are afraid that if you make drugs available from a, at a prescription-based drug, um, so it's not tainted, uh, that that's going to create more drug use. A safer drug supply is fundamentally important. I think we have to be honest and say there are people out there who don't care if addicts die. I have heard it said often. And my answer to that is, so what kind of addicts do you, do you think are okay to die? Is it an addict like me? Is that the one you think is okay to die? And usually the conversation kind of stalls at that point. But here's the thing is, remember that the biggest drug that's consumed is alcohol. And, and we, so when we talk about a safe consumption site, I have a friend who always says, yeah, that's called a bar, right? <laughs> much more damage done by alcohol uh, fights that start with alcohol. Generally, if somebody is extremely high on an opiate, they are asleep. They are not engaging in anything other than sleeping unconscious. Um, a safe drug supply just means uh you know what you're getting. So it's, I always say it's like being, um, having, you know, the standards of, of, uh, you know, of alcohol consumption, you know, you get an ISO certified alcohol. This is an ISO certified, um, consumable of whatever that means. So it, you know, what's in it. Otherwise it really is a crapshoot and we are spending a lot of time deal and energy and money and all of these other things dealing with poisonings which is because people are not getting what they're expecting it's a different dosage it's a different um strength um so that is just guaranteeing that because if you believe and, and i'm not going to say that i believe in this because it's not true but if you believe in there's a recovery from um a problematic drug use and i'm not going to say what that means it's not necessarily abstinence harm reduction whatever that is the whole point of it is you cannot do that if you are dead there is no hope of recovery once you are dead. You have to be alive to be able to recover. We need to keep you alive for that for that moment. You know, and one of the other things, so when, when you were talking about the idea of what stops us from going into places, and and I think people fear-mongering is pretty horrible. And, and I think we've we've seen our fair share of that in the last couple of days for sure, around generating fear. Um, I'll tell you, and I'm going to use, and I know there's, it's been in the paper a lot lately, and but I'm going to use the bathroom, the but public washrooms as and public potable water as an as an issue. It boggles my mind why anybody would be against having public facilities. Um, you know, during COVID, I was a real advocate for access to hygiene, so basic hygiene for folks. Um, which meant toilets, running water, and uh, the ability to wash one's hands because because we were in a pandemic. And somebody explained to somebody said to me, you know what's been really horrific is any any and it was just a very specific instance, but it was older folks having to go to Hamilton for for medical treatments 
who could not go that long of a distance without stopping to go to the washroom and not being able to find any place open, right? This is a common denominator, right? We all have human bodies that all need to use washrooms and that need to drink water and need to walk. Like, this is something we can all use. And so here's my thing is, and I asked people this today. I said, we were talking about the public washroom. I said, have you tried it? Have you gone? Have you used it? Because it's not just for them. It's for you, right? Second day it was open. I was down there and I used it and I had a great experience. I fulfilled all of my dreams, all of my expectations. I, I went to the washroom and it left and I washed my hands and I left. My point is, is that why don't we look at some of the commonality here? And why don't we realize that, you know, maybe maybe it's my problem of being Christian, but or being a minister, right? What we do for the least of us, we do for all of us. All of us. What we've been hearing in the last number of days is, you know, the walls are covered with feces, the, the, the toilet is stuffed full of needles and cans. Um, and, and, and people are saying, well, wow, why did we spend all of that money just to have that happen? Yeah, and I think there's a bunch of things there. So, uh, and, and first of all, you know, maybe we, were, we, maybe we launched it poorly. You know, in hindsight, it was done very on the down low because because they had had such negative publicity already that nobody wanted to make a big deal of it. And, and so, you know, my my question would be, you know, should we maybe have opened it up on shorter hours to begin with and have somebody there to talk about it or maybe check on it every hour and check up with folks and see what's going on? Maybe, you know, ha be having those conversations at some places where folks gather maybe and then extend the hours as we got used to it perhaps that might be a thing maybe there's also growing pains maybe this is a short-lived thing while people start to understand what's going on um i you know we have often so here at our at our church we had a whole bunch of issues with with toilets um we have had our own sewer issues and we are very open. We have 17 bathrooms here and our plumbing is from 1862. So to be absolutely clear, old sewers, lots of toilets. And um, and it has gradually tapered off uh, to the extent, you know, and it's mostly, and it sounds so silly, but by making everything else available, right? And by having relationships and conversations and, and understanding what this is all about. So when folks come into this place, for example, Nobody has to put needles in the washroom because I've got a, a you know a container right there. So you've you've got that available. I, I don't know if there's a container. I didn't see one in that washroom, but that might be a, a note. Um, the other thing that I, I would say that may in hindsight may not have been particularly thought thoughtful is it was opened right after we closed the seasonal shelter. Um, so now it, you know within two weeks, there was no place, you know, at least 45 people were were now houseless, shelterless, you know, with nothing, where, nowhere to go. So, you know, some of these things might have contributed. Some might be a way in hindsight to look at. But I'll tell you, you know, what doesn't help? Yelling. <laughs> doesn't, or shouting about it? No, that doesn't help. You know, sometimes these things take time to self-regulate. And I would also come back to the, the idea, and I know it sounds terrible, and I know it's not popular, but... Um, that's not how we treat anybody else. So when your kid goes in, and I mean, when we're potty treating our children and they don't do a great job, what do we do? Do we banish them from the toilets? So is the access to hygiene based on good behavior? 
I would say no. Do we like good behavior? Yes. How are we going to get it? Let's put our heads together. I'll tell you one way we will is by not making it a homeless bathroom, but by making it a bathroom for all of us. If we all go in and use it and we were all checking up on it, wow, maybe we could do this as a community instead of saying this was a government thing for those people and saying it's a community thing for all of us. Thank you. And uh, you, I just want you to keep up the good work because you and, and Silver Spire and the people you're connected with do an awesome job. 